Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Romans 11, 11 to 18. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, referencing Israel. May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy... The lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And so in this section of Romans, Paul in 9 to 11 is working out the role of Israel, the role of Judaism in God's plan of cosmic salvation. And he's describing then the incorporation of Gentiles into Israel. His point in regard to Israel is that by Jewish stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles. He's saying their rejection is not a permanent condition, but serves God's purposes in the reconciliation of the world. There's only one piece of dough, he says. There is not a Gentile and Jewish dough. All is leavened by the same holiness. As he puts it in verse 16, you being a wild olive, that is you Gentiles, were grafted in to the root, which is Israel. And you became partaker with them of the singular olive tree. He's describing all of humanity as one dough, one tree. And part of what Paul is saying, he says himself may be a mystery. And in fact, we'll conclude with this. But we know his point is that salvation for all people, universal salvation, the gospel comes to all people, through Israel, and through incorporating all people into the singular tree or the singular lump of dough. Now, unfortunately, there is a profound misunderstanding among Christians regarding Israel, and we're witnessing this today in Israel and Palestine. God's plan for Israel is confused, and this is partly behind what has been called Uh, ethnic cleansing or genocide that is taking place in Gaza. 
Palestinian Christians. They've written to Christians, Western Christians, condemning their complicity, not only in the destruction of the Palestinian people, but of Palestinian Christians. This is quoting their letter. Some of us lost dear friends and family members in the atrocious Israeli bombardment of innocent civilians on October 19, 2023, Christians included, who were taking refuge in the historic Greek Orthodox Church of St. Porphyrus in Gaza, one of the oldest Christian churches in Orthodoxy. The letter goes on and sets forth Palestinian Christians, their commitment to nonviolence. They're peaceable. Their condemnation of national ideology of any kind. Their condemnation of racism being mixed with Christian teaching. And so this letter from our Palestinian brothers and sisters is a desperate plea to Western Christians to come to Jesus and oppose the ethnic cleansing unfolding on the world stage and largely supported, you know, the Israel only exists through the graces of the United States and United States policy is largely determined by the block of evangelical Christians who are influencing this understanding. And so the irony of American Christians predominantly evangelicals, blindly supporting Israel's destruction of Palestinians. And the irony is that this is a repetition of the moral and theological error which Paul and the writers of the New Testament condemn. The privileging of Israel, the privileging of the law, of circumcision, of food laws, as Paul describes it in Ephesians, is a wall of hostility. It's a work of the law of enmity that is undone in Christ. Now, it's not that Judaism is displaced, nor is it a distinctive entity apart from what is being done in Christ. Nor is the covenant with Abraham a distinct promise from that fulfilled in Christ. So we're not doing supersessionism. We're not doing a two-covenant theology. Rather, Israel is made complete in Christ, fulfilling the promise given to Abraham. This is Paul's argument in Galatians and Romans. Israel is not made complete through land holdings in the Middle East. That's not what that means. But through inheritance of the earth, actually. A drawing in of all nations is what is pictured in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Egypt and Assyria and Isaiah 19 are pictured as being incorporated into Israel. These are their enemies, but they will be incorporated. In Isaiah 56, it pictures foreigners from every nation streaming into Israel, into Mount Zion. Zechariah 2.11 says those who are far off will be brought in. Those who are the traditional enemies. In Psalms, you know, Egypt, Philistia, Tyre, Babylon, Ethiopia are counted part of Israel and part of God's plan for worldwide redemption. And so the picture is this cosmic salvation wrought through Israel. And in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the true vine. And of course, the vine 
is representative of Israel. He says that through this true vine in John 17, all believers are incorporated into Israel. And Paul describes in Ephesians those who were once aliens, those who were once far off to the commonwealth of Israel as being made citizens and fellow heirs through Christ in Ephesians 2. He says in verse 15, He has abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two. What two? Well, there's only two. There's only Gentiles and Jews. And he says the two are made into one new humanity, thus establishing peace. There's only one lump of dough. There's only one tree. There's only one humanity that is brought together then in Christ. And Paul makes it clear that to cling to the ordinances of the law is synonymous with enmity. Christ has brought an end to this enmity by incorporating all believers, Paul says in Ephesians, into the temple of God. Here is the true temple. As Paul describes it in Romans, which we read in 11.26, are grafted into the branch, which is Israel. Both James and Peter begin their letter describing the diaspora. But they're not referring to Jews. They're referring to the diaspora, the dispersed Israel, which are Christians. Peter describes Christians in terms which would seem to only have once applied to Israel, but of course he's saying this to Christians. In 2.9 of 1 Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Revelation pictures heaven come to earth. The new Jerusalem has 12 gates representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But of course, the 12 is also reduplicated in the 12 apostles. So that all people come streaming in to the heavenly Jerusalem that encompasses all of the earth. And so Israel is not replaced, but completed by the church. The church and Christ are not distinct from Israel, but the fulfillment of the promise given to her in Abraham. The establishment of her temple. Here is the true meaning of the temple. And of course we know the temple was actually destroyed in 70 AD. But we still have the temple in Christ. And the incorporation of all the earth and all peoples are incorporated into the precincts of Israel. The temple, Jerusalem, you know. And of course, all of these are metaphorical for the kingdom of God established by Christ. There are not two covenants, two Israels, two temples, two peoples. There is one lump of dough, one new people, one tree. Israel is expanded and universalized so as to include all the earth and all people. And of course, the great irony is that it is Christian people who are insisting on a separate covenant, a separate race, a separate temple. And in so doing, they are literally defending the wall of hostility. Christian Zionism is strangely 
advocating the enmity that we're seeing unfold between Jews and Gentiles. The wall of hostility of the law, you know, that was torn down and ended by Christ, we're seeing it erected in a Christian Zionism, imagining that the country of Israel has some sort of eternal significance. And the nationalism which killed Christ, that is, why did Christ die? Don't you know that one man must die that the nation be saved, the high priest says? They kill Christ to save the nation of Israel. They reject the Messiah in favor of a kind of reified notion of Israel. In favor of the nation and religion of Israel, they kill Christ and they are continuing to kill Christ. Or maybe the evangelical Christians are continuing to kill Christ. The body of Christ certainly are literally being destroyed today because of the reification of the law. As if the Mosaic law, Judaism and Israel, were an end in and of themselves apart from Christ. This is the Judaizing false teaching that threatened the early church and which much of the New Testament is aimed at preventing. Now part of this goes back to the Protestant Reformation Justification theory, you know, has played a key part in making the law foundational to the work of Christ. That is, rather than relativizing, suspending, setting aside the law, the law becomes the way in which we understand Christ. And it's led to the conviction that the Jews then must have a central role to play in a future millennial kingdom. This Christian Zionism, or essentializing of the nation-state, we can trace it back to English Protestant colonists. You know, it began in England. England was really the first nation to do identity as a nation-state, and they did it very much in conjunction with the notion of the nation that blesses Israel. And the colonists who come to the United States also then began to think in this way. Alexander Campbell talked about the United States as the city set upon a hill. And of course this is quoting Jesus in Matthew and it's a reference from the Old Testament but Jesus is not talking about literal nation states. He's talking about the kingdom of God that he's establishing. This is James Skillen. He says it is the Puritan heritage of Americans seeing themselves as the city set on a hill a light to the nations. This heritage is the root that still gives light to the national identity, affecting even those who are not Christians or associated with the house of worship. That is that nationalism, first of all, foisted upon the literal land of Israel, Israel as a nation state, and then carried over to the nation of England, and then carried over to the nation of the United States. And American evangelical support for the state of Israel is based on this kind of civil religious faith, the idea that God has chosen America to be the kind of new Israel that helps shepherd the survival of the Jewish state so that Christ will come about, you know, his return will come about as prophesied. 
And so Skillen concludes, it's more accurate to say that Christian Zionism is a specific kind of political theology arising from within the American civil religion. American religion is killing Palestinians, Palestinian Christians. I don't think the true kingdom of God is divided. That's what Jesus says. And a house divided cannot stand. And it is not the true kingdom of God. Donald Lewis in his history of Zionism concurs Christian Zionism, it's not really about restoration of Israel or about Jewish recovery of the land or really even about Christian understandings about prophecy and certainly that has played a role. But it is really about how Protestants have framed their identity. Protestant identity has primarily been hammered out, he says, on the anvil of Christian relationship to Jews. He says the ethno-nationalism that Christian restorationists fostered in England in the 17th century was largely focused on Protestant England's duties toward the Jews. That is in England, you know, in the uh, 13th century, they had expelled all the Jews. There were no Jews in England. And then in the 17th century, there is this new kind of understanding of the nation and England then begins to welcome the Jews. There's about 6,000 to 8,000 Jews in England in the 17th century. And from there, this ethno-nationalism spread to America. And of course, in the last few decades, it's flowed to the ends of the earth. And so American Christian nationalism, within this frame of understanding, is based upon being a nation that blesses Israel. You'll hear our politicians say that over and over. In fact, the new Speaker of the House, in his first speech, he said, well, I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible. And therefore, we have to support Israel. We have to bless Israel. And so this misconstrued understanding, this Christian Zionism, attached to a form of Christian nationalism, it constitutes a violent alternative to the true Christian faith. This false understanding is now the predominant religion literally reigning in the Congress of the United States. And so the specific origin of Israel as the anvil upon which to hammer out Christian identity, certainly it has its roots in the Protestant Reformation. You know, we know that in Roman Catholicism, the Jews were kind of the despised people. They were a persecuted people. But in justification theory, the work of Christ is divine according to the requirements or the conditions of the law. And of course, Paul's point is that Christ is the condition defining the work of the law and the purposes of Israel, not the other way around. There are no legal, ethnic, or contractual conditions which constrain the work of Christ. Israel, they haven't created themselves. God has chosen them. In chapter 9, he talks about that this choosing is not something that makes them special in some way. He says he chooses in 9, 9 to 11. He chooses Sarah, Rebecca, 
Isaac, Jacob, so that God's purposes, according to his choice, could stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. God chooses. Now, he's probably engaged in a conversation with a false teacher. And the false teacher may be saying, that's right, Brother Paul. God chooses, and he's chosen Israel. And so he's kind of got the guy shaking his head saying, yes. The potter can do whatever he wants with his clay, can't he? God has fashioned Israel for a particular purpose. But what is that purpose? Namely, to bring in the Gentiles. And that's Paul's point. He has the guy shaking his head, yes. And then he says, yes, the purpose of Israel is to bring in the Gentiles. He quotes Hosea in chapter 9, 25 to 26. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. In both Romans and Galatians, Paul's, Paul argues... There is a singular covenant given to Abraham. It's fulfilled through Christ. And this is inclusive of all people. And he argues then in Romans 9 to 11, Israel is not the end point of this covenant, but it is the means, the tutor. It's a historical mediation. The Messiah would arise through the generations descending from Abraham for the blessing of all peoples. And this is his point in chapter 11. Should God wish to call them, he can do that. And he has done that. And he's saying to the Gentiles, and you have been grafted in. He describes Israel stumbling over the same stone, ironically, which Christian Zionists have stumbled over. They're saying, well, isn't Israel special? Isn't she God's chosen people? Isn't this an abandonment of Israel? Look at 9.30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. That is, Israel by imagining just it's enough to be Jewish. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here he's quoting Isaiah 28. Behold, I lay a stone in Zion, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. In Isaiah 28, it describes people entering into a covenant with death, imagining that through their religion, they have the power to escape death. And he who believes in him then will not be Put to shame is actually the word. And that's from Isaiah. Those who stumble will be put to shame. But those who trust in him will not be put to shame. And so Paul's argument in Israel is formed from a neutral clay for God's purposes. And these purposes included all people. This is the very point of Israel. This was always God's plan. And as Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed... And maybe the translation here, it is not drifted off course by including the Gentiles 
No, this was always God's purpose. And so we can hear the false teacher in this accusing Paul. You know, your gospel, Paul, seems to suggest that the law, dragging pagans into the people of God, it's destined for shipwreck. And indeed, between the false teacher, justification theory, and Paul, then we have very different portrayals of Israel. And we need to sort this out. Israel, in justification theory, represents a timeless, ahistorical, individual, and contractual arrangement. This is like the false teacher. This is like the Judaizers. The law and its significance are eternal. While for Paul, Israel was never simply an ethnicity or a specific national identity, but a medium in which God's purposes were worked out, being worked out, in Christ. And so these are incompatible portrayals of Israel. And Christian Zionism sides with the false teacher, as does justification theory. In fact, Christian Zionism seems to fall under Paul's critique of seeking to establish a righteousness over and against the righteousness of Christ. This is literally the teaching of Christian Zionism. For not knowing, this is Paul in 10.3, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And so Paul is saying Israel has failed or Jews have failed to be Jewish if they fail to acknowledge Christ. They've imagined the law could deliver them. That the law contained a righteousness apart from Christ. And actually this is a possibility posed by Luther in justification theory. The law never was the means to righteousness. Israel is running a race. That race has ended. They have stumbled in the process. This is 931. Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. The law pointed to the righteousness of Christ, but pursuing righteousness through the law, they missed the law. And of course, this is Paul's argument in chapter 4 in Galatians. The law was a medium whose significance was preceded by the promise given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ. And that competition of the law is over. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, Paul says in 930, they attained righteousness. And they're not even in the race. The racers, the Jews, are running aimlessly, stumbling over faith. And meanwhile, the race is over and the crown is awarded. And so the mistake of Israel and the mistake that Christian Zionists make about Israel is not that she stumbled prior to Christ. This is not what Paul is saying. In being Jews and keeping the law, that's fine. Prior to Christ. The stumbling is over Christ. After the race has ended. Here is the purpose of the law. She has not responded to Christ. But has continued to cling to the law. To cling to Jerusalem. As an end in and of itself. And the end is in Christ. And so Jewish pursuit of righteousness on the basis of the law, it's a kind of futility. 
It's a post-Christian phenomenon. That's what we're saying. To assign an ongoing significance to the race under the law, is, which is finished, well, that's clearly to miss Christ. And so in this, Christian Zionism is not of Christ. Right? It's a false teaching. It's a false teaching about the church, and it's a false teaching about Israel that is killing Christians. It's a false teaching on the order of assigning righteousness to the works of the law. And so the immediate fruit of this, I think, an anti-Christ teaching is the slaughter of Christians. And these Christians then are pleading for their survival in the face of a theology that is really about a kind of ethnic cleansing. And in their open letter, the Palestinian Christians, it's interesting, they embrace the fullness of the peaceable gospel. And unlike the majority of American Christians, they recognize nationalism is the problem. Nationalism of any brand, they say, is a perversion. It's a perversion of the all-embracing universal gospel. Here's a quote from their letter. We are also profoundly troubled when the name of God is invoked to promote violence and religious national ideologies. And of course the problem is American Christian nationalism and Christian Zionism, they arise from the same soil in history in which national, religious, and ethnic identities are fused with the name of Christ privileging the law over the unconditional good news of the gospel. The gospel delivers from the dividing wall of hostility, contained in ethnic markers, contained in national boundaries, in legal identity, in land holdings in the Middle East. Let's conclude. But let me just read Paul in chapter 11, verse 30 to 33. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedience, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. And here's... Paul's praise of glory. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.